must live in the present. Launch yourself on every wave. Find your eternity in, in each, each moment. moment. Fools stand on their island of opportunities and look toward another land. There, there is, is no, no other, other land. land. I'm Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff, and this is The Unruly Muse. We are talking today about landscape, real and imagined. Yes, landscape. You can't miss it. Just open your eyes. What I love about this theme is how do we find perspective? Our earliest way of doing that is the land, ground, to interpret not just where we are, but who we are. And this so important idea that's mentioned in so many fields of being centered. Well, let's say a couple words about our teaser today, which was by Henry David Thoreau, whom I always think of in terms of landscape. And uh, the little excerpt we did is from a journal entry he wrote in 1859, only three years before his death. Anyway, he was a transcendentalist writer, and so they saw nature as a pathway to intense spiritual experience, which kind of goes with our theme, too. Yes, it does, because when we cannot see a real landscape, no problem. We will imagine one. We'll, right. We'll conjure it up using material that isn't part of our experience or just by remembering some place we've been and how it looked. And I think today all of our pieces really reflect this interweaving of what we might think is actually out there that we're seeing or that we're in versus what we are seeing inside of our mind and imagination. Yes, that is the golden thread that runs through our pieces this time as we talk about landscape real and imagined. This first song is not so much about what you would think when you think landscape. It was more like the edge cityscape to people who loved the train and the tracks and the bridges and the trestles and one another and it's called Blue Train Stood on our bridge and I wondered how could you ruin yourself? 
Well, that was wonderful, John. Thank you, and I've got to say I had help from very talented musicians. The guitar and harmonica tracks you heard were recorded in a studio in France by my friend Dr. James T. Kelly, also known as T-Bone Kelly. Uh And the drummer is the internationally renowned Frank Otis, a percussion professor here in Kentucky, but it's played all over the world. So it was great great to have them on board, and I thank both of them. I really like this song because we get the sense of traveling through the landscape which is an echo of what's going on in the singer's tale that that he's telling us. We see the landscape from the train physically, but we also see the landscape of love changing. I I like that line, don't let our love fade away, Mm -hmm. because, of course, landscapes do fade away after time sometimes. If you lived in the Midwest, you probably spent some time looking down the tracks. Yes. And it's just gorgeous a lot of the times when the sun hits it just right, but it's also very lonely and wistful. And in this case, those tracks which had been beloved ushered away the person that the singer was so fond of to bigger things in the city. Yes. And then the train tracks are such a metaphor for where are we going? Where do we want to be? So when you say the word wistful, I agree completely. Mm -hmm. And the tracks, oh my gosh, talk about carving up the landscape. Right. It's a lot of people love trains, but lots of folks don't when they came rolling through and carving into halves what had been a whole. And destroying their vistas of their of their own land, perhaps. Right. I also like the bluesy feel of Blue Train. Well, good. Uh, the, it was a little bit of a spoof on public transport codes, their various lines, but it was also because of the bad thing that happens when mm-hmm. uh, the train takes her away. Well, that kind of takes us in, I think, to... Our first poem by Hilda Raz, a wonderful poet and editor and critic who we have performed before. This is the title poem from her new collection, which is her collected works, and it's called Letter from a Place I've Never Been. Here's her genesis. I was teaching a night class and assigned a prompt the title of the poem. As the students wrote, I wrote too. The next day was the start of my trip to Alaska to read from a newly published book of poems and teach in their program. The time warp was built into the poem's structure. So here we have Letter from a Place I've Never Been. Where cold was supposed to be. The sun is warm. You've promised no wind. The grass is calm under the snow. The map showed the interior. Which is where I am. The trip was long. I knew it would be. From the top of the earth. I saw no mountain. Though you promised. If the air was clear. The mountain would show. But ribbons of light swirled the vault of the sky. The The sun sun set at four. The The sun sun rose at nine. Moose and sled dogs. Exotic creatures. I thought to discover. Around some corner or other. By the salmon processing plant. Never. I'd brought my sunscreen for a tromp. Through the woods. No woods. No trees. Flat rock that seemed to be granite. Alaska is as far from where I am tonight. As Chicago is from Seattle. Where the layover is long. Or, to put it another way. The way of a friend. The distance from L.A. to N.Y. The trip trip I've I've taken. taken. I'm scared of the cold. Of the dark. 
of the journey. The unfamiliar plants that perk. Into poems I've read and reviewed. Some kind of weed. Not jewel weed from Robert Frost. Oh, why did I say I'd travel? The tundra is something strange, like a sponge. And, and golden. golden. This poem just tore me up the first time I read it. Not just the lost feeling, but this co-presence of being lured and afraid of the landscape. Yeah, I, I think this poem is such a great blend of imagined and real landscape tied to the emotions of the speaker. And she is afraid, and she's cold, and she has fear of the journey itself. Ah, but there at the end. Yeah, it's the tundra is golden, right? Right. We see the appreciation being born in this poem. And I think it's so fascinating because everything she had been told about Alaska or that she had thought would be in her view when she got there wasn't there. The mountains weren't there. No snow. She just didn't see the moose, the sled dogs, the exotic creatures. I mean, it's almost like she arrives in a place, of course she's never been there, even though she's been there. I see you absolutely nailed it in picking Hilda's poem for this show about landscapes real and imagined. For a while, the imagined landscape eclipses the real one, and it's not just simple disappointment, it's this shock to perception. Well, and especially when you're going on a long journey like this. Right, what did I get into? Um, oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, Alaska is the last frontier in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, she grabbed it, and I really like seeing how honest she is about her range of trepidations there as she traveled, but then almost not in spite of herself, but she is open to... The landscape that is really there, because the detail is quite specific, that she mm -hmm. it is coming in. And as soon as she stops comparing it to what she expected, it turns to gold. Well, and then I think it's so fascinating that she chose this poem to be the title poem of her collected works. Mm -hmm. Letter from a place I've never been. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's very evocative. Landscapes are sometimes overwhelming, and sometimes our greatest memories of them are overwhelming. You know, people standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon and just going, uh, they don't know even what to say. Right. How do I even look at this? We are constantly making sense or not making sense of where we find ourselves, both in the real and the not real. Yes. And so the landscape is a shifting thing, even though we talk about our grounding of where we are. Our mind doesn't stay there. Our uh, apprehension and, and perception doesn't stay where we are. So as, as you pointed out when we were corresponding about this theme, when the landscape rushes by, we have what we just passed, what we're seeing now, what's beckoning into the future. It's just this marvelous kaleidoscope. It's all there in the landscape, real and imagined. And in our next piece, we have this weaving of landscape into memory for the narrator in a tragic and deeply felt moment in her family's life. Tell us a little bit about the excerpt from your novel, The Day After Death. Well, this novel was inspired by how family dynamics really change when one of the crucial members of the family dies. There are three siblings. Two of them are fraternal twins. And our first-person narrator is the female twin who tells the story. From Chapter 3 of the novel by Lindsay Miller, The Day After Death. Duncan died in December 
one month after our 12th birthday. We were born on November 21st on the cusp of Scorpio and Sagittarius. Is it possible for fraternal twins in that configuration to lean in astrologically opposite directions? Me tending toward the secretive traits of the Scorpion, seeking dark mysteries, while Duncan evolved into the curious archer, always questing for adventure. Maybe it's not likely, but it happened. The winter solstice that year was a cold day in a very cold month. Winter had begun early in rural North Dakota, with snow falling by mid-October. We had a brief return to milder fall temperatures until November, but by the end of the month, ice covered the shallow sloughs in the pasture by our farm. My brothers and I often skated together. I loved the movement of skating, the fluid motion of legs and hips and shoulders. My body angled forward as I glided across the ice but I didn't like the cold. I had a recurring dream at that time of being left by my parents at an outdoor rink at dusk, of circling around and around as the ice emptied of other people as darkness came, until there was only me, a small figure turning slowly into a frozen statue as my limbs stiffened in the deepening cold. And so that day, the 21st of December, I stayed inside while Adrian and Duncan shouldered their skates and hiked to a nearby pond in the afternoon. That day came to define my life more than any other. It was the day that part of me broke off and disappeared beneath the ice. When I replay that afternoon, I fervently wish that instead of reading, I had swathed myself in sweaters and gloves and trailed behind them. If only I had trudged on in their wake, kicking at the dirty crust of snow and ice at the top of the hill where the pasture began, dreading the wind as I tumbled down the slope. I knew just where they'd gone, in the field bordering the slough, as big as a real pond that year from a wet summer. Adrian had hauled a makeshift bench from the ruins of our great-grandfather's barn. That dilapidated structure had collapsed long ago. Hidden in a tangle of juneberry bushes, the rubble provided raw material for dramas played out in castles and forts. But once Adrian resurrected the bench for skating purposes, we'd sit on its splintery slab, our fingers numb and clumsy in the sub-zero weather as we'd lace our skates. I'd wear leather gloves under my mittens, then take off the mittens. Skilled at using my gloved fingers to weave the laces through the metal-encased openings, the leather hardened in the cold. When I looked back on that day, I easily saw myself out with them, falling and sliding on the steep hill, Cheeks rough and red, nose running, because if I had been there... Watching his back. Duncan wouldn't have skated to the center of the slough where the ice barely covered the water with a brittle sheet. We'd had a couple of 35-degree days that week, and the center of that slough was deep. The ice glittered there, black and shiny, but really it was whisper-thin. It only looked solid. If I'd been there, he might have teased me for being a wimp, but I would have nagged Duncan off the ice. Adrian didn't nag Duncan, not that day. He couldn't have. Because at 3.30 I heard a strangled sound outside the window. I couldn't tell if the sound signified fury or sorrow. And then came the slap of boots against the linoleum on the back porch, the heavy feet tramping into the house, pushing through the back door with the force of a blizzard. As I leaped out of my chair, the book I was reading toppled onto the floor. In a few steps I reached the kitchen. I braced myself in the doorway. Adrian was slumped on a chair by the table, my mother standing over him, cradling his head against her stomach. 
Eva's breathing, harsh and ragged, filled the room as she held Adrian. Adrian's clothes and hands were wet. He was covered with a glaze of ice. Eva's arms and hands were wet, too. The front of her jacket and the knees of her pants streaked with dirt. When she shifted her weight, the folds of her coat, ice-encrusted, cracked. They didn't notice me. They could see only each other. What's going on? I said, a sickening wave of dread making me lightheaded. The two of them stared at me. My mother gasped as if she'd seen a ghost. One of her arms beckoned to me but she didn't move from Adrian's side. My mother's stunned look suspended time in a bloodless freeze. The ghost she'd summoned brushed by me in a whisper of cold air. Where's Where's Duncan? Duncan? Lynn, talk about landscape and life coming together. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine this scene without winter and cold and the bleakness of what that means in the upper Midwest. Uh, You know, trees with arms that look scary, the white everywhere. You really capture the feel and the sound of the landscape and the crackling when she imagines kicking the crusty snow and when the clothing of the mother and the son as the ice crushes and cracks off the clothing, a very distinctive sound, which she appears to process very quickly into something is terribly wrong. Yeah, I noticed this when we chose this, but the idea of the ghost, uh, the mother gasping as if she'd seen a ghost, because of course, Amanda, the, the daughter, looks so much like Duncan. Yes. And, and in hats at 12, they probably looked the same. So the idea of the ghost, Duncan's ghost, passing through, I, I, I didn't remember that from writing it particularly, but it kind of hit me. What's remarkable about that is that the air, is it him fleeing his mother or rushing past his sister toward his mother? That's left ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Either way, some bad shit just went down, it sounds like. Yeah. In this novel, there are shifting alliances, not just within the family, but then in Amanda's life as she goes out into the world. And there's a lot of triangles in this story. Well, this book, which is a wonderful read cover to cover, you will find landscape woven into the life of the narrator and the lives of the people and the events that affect all of them in a wonderful way. This book came out in 2016, and um, I remember when I was writing and revising it for publication, thinking about those North Dakota childhood winter days and really wanting to capture the mystery of them and the, like in Hilda's poem, the fear of the cold. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you for those comments. Well, I always figured it was easier to forgive somebody who was really cold. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but the opposite of cold is warm and there's a different sort of landscape and that's the one of the imagination and in a way, the territory of the inside of our home and Uh, The poem we're going to visit in the second half will take us down that road, and then we have a great song from David R. Merrill coming up. So we're not done with you folks yet, but the cat's pestering us. It's at the door. I hear it scratching, so we better go feed it. Back in a bit.
Dave, thank you for that music. That's right. That's a little piece called Snow Day from Dave Merrill. And funny, it should be that uh, he's our break music because our second oh. featured song is from him. Before we get to that, though, we've got an interesting poem to examine. Please tell us about it. This poem is called Night Braille by Sarah Cochin, whom we have read aloud before on this show. This uh, poem came out in the latest issue of ABQ in print, just came out. It captures so well the language of landscape in a child's point of view and how so much of it is imaginary. So here's Sarah's genesis. A while back, I wrote a series of poems about childhood memories, and Night Braille came out of that time. Feeling our way in the dark seems to be a relevant theme no matter what stage of life we are in, and especially now when there is so much darkness and fear in our world. As I think back on sharing a room with my sister, I reflect on how important is the companionship of friends, how we help each other find the tiniest glimmers of light, and to make our way one step at a time when we can't see what is ahead. So here we have Night Braille. We shared a room. Sisters in twin beds. Some nights fear crept in. What could be hiding in the dark? The room was black. Only that crack of light under the door. We learned that if we put feet on the floor, felt for bedpost, rail, a few steps more, we'd find the doorknob, opening, hall, Isn't that our human practice even now? Grope our way, eyes wide open. One safety to the next. Eyes on the slimmest glow. Use touch to make familiar. Translate. What is unknown to to what what we we know. Thank you so much, Sarah, for this poem. It takes me back. And the speaker is right. Isn't that our human practice even now? Yes. Creeping and groping our way forward. That's all we can do. But we do then learn and know the landscape through touch and all the little clues, like one of my favorite lines, if not the favorite line, the slimmest glow. Yeah, and and the children's landscape, so much that isn't seen, but it's there in the imagination hiding around a corner or in the dark, and then that line, use touch to make familiar. Making Braille out of the objects in the room and in the house. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a fun poem to perform, and like you say, it evokes a lot of memories of having to find your way around the house at night. Thank you again, Sarah. Yes, night Braille, so clever. That brings us up to our second song by Dave Merrill with the Delvers. And what can you tell us, John, about White Pines? I asked Dave to share a little bit about the origins of this song. I first heard it back in the early 80s when I lived out in Virginia, where he still lives, and he told me this. He said that tune goes back to about 1978. He said it was inspired by a hunting trip that he took with his dad in the Blue Ridge Mountains, going down the road, looking out the window of the old station wagon, and seeing mm. the pines going by. Perfect. And uh, it evolved into, a, in his mind, and, and, and lyrically later, into a period piece of a soldier coming back with a missing limb that the sweetheart is not yet aware of. He says, pick your war. Uh, the, last, the last verse came years later. So that's the genesis of this song from Dave Merrill called White Pines. <laughs> White pines are flying, they got ice on their wings. 
looking out my window, it's a pretty sight to see. We're chugging this line, making good time. I'm anxious for my sweet baby see. The fighting is all over, I got things to do. Look out, my sweet baby, I'm coming home to you. We're chugging this line, making good time. I'm anxious for my sweet baby see. impressed by the movement through space that I feel when I'm listening to this song. And it got me thinking about how does music create landscape? It has to evoke our vision and texture because it's all done through sound. And that that is just such a remarkable thing that musicians like you and Dave do. He does give you that train feel, doesn't he? It chugs right along and it's catchy and uplifting. But then, of course, given his genesis, but also just listening closely to the lyrics, there's an ominous flow in there, too, as the train tears through this landscape toward home. And that very last chord has that minor element introduced to it to uh, suggest that something difficult is about to happen. Yeah, there's always the return to home and what is waiting there for you. Mm -hmm. We just tear through landscapes, don't we? We build roads and tracks and 
tunnels. But then when those are done, we just rip through these landscapes. And I think sometimes experiences are created by the speed with which we move through landscape that are actually imaginary. He wouldn't have thought of trees having wings if he hadn't been ripping on a train through the woods. That's right. Well, as I was thinking about the landscape of sound and rhythm and silence, I thought of John Cage, 4 minutes and 33 seconds, (laughs) which has no score. And it's just the sounds of the air, what's happening in the landscape, and then the people coughing and shuffling who are there to hear a composition that turns into them. Mm-hmm. It just made me think of how intriguingly different using sound to create landscape is from painting or dance or mm-hmm. even writing. Mm-hmm. Some writers are particularly good at getting that feel of outside or just the way a place looks, and I think Dave succeeds in that in this song. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to ask you about, though, is as, as you thought about landscape over the last few weeks as we built up to the show, did you think back on the places where your eye used to linger and all the different places you've lived? I did think about that, and and I thought about, of course, the landscapes that seem to grow bigger and better in your memory versus the ones that fade in your memory. And uh, how often are we disappointed when we go to a place that was stupendous for us the second or third time, and we say, oh, it's not how I remembered, or it's smaller than I remembered, or it doesn't have that glitter and jewel-like look that I remember. It really got me into thinking of the real landscapes I've been in and the the, uh, imagined landscapes that I took with me. Mm -hmm. How about you? Right away, I thought about the train when I thought about landscape because of what the tracks do to the view. And then I thought about a shock I had when my dad was moving out of the home they'd lived in for almost 60 years. And I always knew we lived close to Chicago because you could be in a car and in 30 minutes you could be in the city, but it always felt so far away. Mm -hmm. So I flew my camera, my flying camera on a quadcopter up above my parents' house a few hundred feet and pointed it east. And there it was. Oh, that's great. The city, Sears Tower, the, you know, the old, the old uh, John Hancock building and and all of their uh, colleagues around there standing looking so stately. And then the glow of the blue of the lake on the other side of the city. I thought, it's been there this whole time. I just couldn't stand high enough to see it. It was so close. And I was shocked that the city really was part of the landscape that I lived in because it always felt so far away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you and I have Chicago in common because I went to elementary school in River Forest, which is a suburb right there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, Chicago is one of the few landscapes that never disappoints me. And I don't know if it's because I have all of those emotional memories of being young there and starting school and um, growing into becoming a person. The city felt grand and big to me as a, a kid. And when I go back now, it's it's still grand and big. It seems that as we are wrapping up our discussion of landscape and its significance, that the past is conjured. And isn't that a coincidence? It's a coincidence because our very next theme is going to be the past. Hmm. And uh, so that was a nice segue that just kind of slid in there. It just happened. Yeah. 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 The past is so evocative. 
Well, at any time, but especially right now. I mean, if you notice, there are so many books being written about historical moments and so many series being made about the past. I mean, I think because we're in such an uneasy present that the past and the future with speculative work Those two things loom really large, so we thought we better explore that. That sounds like a good idea to me. If you want to check on the show notes or leave a comment, you can go to theunrulymuse.net. I'm Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff. And this is The Unruly Muse.